You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, joined as always by Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Well, Chad, here it is. It's Labor Day. Yep. That means, you know, kids are home, uh, wife's not working, the weather has taken a turn for early fall apocalyptic. Yeah, stormy a lot of ways. out there. Yeah. Stormy out there today. Getting stormy. And here I am trying a different recording setup this time to try to get out of everybody's way. As you'll see, I've moved to the basement. Um, I don't know how it's going to work, to be honest with you. Well, the people, We're all on find the, Patreon, out the people on the Patreon will see that you got crystal clear video. So you look stunning. Uh, okay. We'll just have to see how the, the audio people feel about your performance. There's a lot on the line this week. Now, see... Also, the people, the, the patrons who are paying for the video version, they will note that it seems like we have reached a a point of, like, we're both going different ways when it comes to pandemic haircuts. Because I actually went and got one. I went to the barbershop, wore a mask the whole time. Fortunately, cutting my hair never takes more than, like, 15 minutes. So I'm in and out of there pretty quickly. You, however, you seem like you are just deciding that you're going to do it at home for the foreseeable future. Well, I mean, I, I've gotten into kind of a, uh, like a weird middle ground where I've been, I've been buzzing it with the clippers. Yeah. So I just took it down over the weekend with the, uh, I believe I used the half inch guard. Uh, so that, and that puts you in, in kind of a weird spot where like, if you are going to pay to get a haircut, I got to grow it out for a while. Naturally. But then you got to endure that. You got to get through that zone. You got to get through a bunch of awkward phases before you get to the place where it's even worthwhile to go in and have them shape it up. So as it continues to grow out, you won't just look like a cue ball, like a Q-tip walking around. Um, So far, I haven't been able to like get over the the mental hump of uh, of accepting that. Like it it gets gets to be like about almost an inch, and I start feeling too weird about it. So I just have to to shave it all off. So I don't know. Maybe this is this is the rest of my life. You could be looking at the rest of my life right here, just with the wall clippers upstairs in the uh, in the bathroom, getting my wife to come in and shave my neck. And people will see you going down the street like that, and they'll go, "There's a guy who couldn't get over the mental hump." That's right. That's right. They will have me uh, have me pegged all the way around. Uh, ben, we got a, a a big week on the show this week. Uh, Obviously, coming out of this UFC event over the weekend where Alistair Overeem defeated Augusto Sakai and heading into uh, another UFC event on Saturday, still down there at the Apex in Las Vegas. As I'm looking at the uh, Wikipedia page for UFC Fight Night Watterson versus Hill, Mm -hmm. I see that at least as of this morning, only two fights were official. Michelle Watterson versus Angela Hill in the main event and then a featherweight fight uh, featuring Billy Quantillo or Billy Quantillo versus Kyle Nelson. Now you remember Billy Q was one of the guys that got, that got COVID recently. Right. So well, here he, he is returning apparently at full strength. He's ready to get back in there and, and uh, do the damn thing. He fought initially 
and then was yes. coming back a couple weeks later or something as a corner man. And that's when he tested positive was as a corner man. And Dana White then rushed to the conclusion means he must have got it somewhere else, <laughs> which Okay, it means he could have got it somewhere else. It means he also could have got it while he was there for the UFC event. How far away are we from just like, hey, if you got your medicals done and you think you can pass the COVID test, come on down to the Apex on Saturday because we might need you. Yeah, well, I mean, they did the same thing with, uh, who was it? Was it Glover recently? That, that uh, or no, it was, uh, it's uh, Cody Garbs tested positive, but his fight with, uh, with Davis and Figueredo is still on. So we're just going to go ahead and jump to the conclusion that he's going to be okay. And then he's going to be good to go, I guess, in November, which does give him a long time to to recuperate. But at the same time, you know, it's people have been known to struggle with this disease over, disease over a long period of time. It's, it's not always two weeks and then you're back good to go. So, uh, you know, like we said on Friday during the power hour, the UFC is, is fortunate enough to have a, a fairly young and, and very, very well, trained, very, very in shape workforce. So most of these people are just flying through this uh, seemingly without any lasting medical damage. But but it, it does seem a little bit, uh, seems like we're putting the cart before the horse a little bit here to just go ahead and say we're still going to have all these fights. Tell you what, though, when I'm sitting there on Saturday night watching a seven fight card, I ain't too mad at it. You know, like we we ended up with seven fights just to the point where there's not even really any point in drawing a distinction between what's a prelim and what's a main card fight anymore. And then we roll in there, get our heavy like a, a five round heavyweight main event done by like before like nine thirty in the one true time zone. I'm like, you know what? This is not the worst thing that could happen, at least for me. Almost as though they should all be like that. Almost. Although now, it, when you're in the COVID age, you're like, hey, if we set up a seven fight card, we're going to end up with three. That's right. You got to have at least 10 on the docket if you want to get through it at all. Yeah. Well, if you haven't already, I would invite everybody out there in listener land to go out and grab a copy of The Blaze. It's my latest novel. It's a mystery and thriller. I've been hearing a lot of little co-maniacs uh, like it. They think it's pretty good. So I'd like to invite you to run out and grab a copy of The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it or you do read it and you enjoy it, please go out and give me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor, buy, read, rate, review, The Blaze, wherever is best for you. Thanks. You can also right now run out and get yourself some CME merchandise over at CottonBureau.com. We got CME logo t-shirts for sale. We got Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts for sale. We got Dundasso t-shirts for sale. Those are always available on demand all the time. Whenever you want them, go over to cottonbureau.com and drape those old bones and some CME merchandise today. Ben, this is exciting. For the third week in a row, new music alert. Uh-oh. This week, we got music from CME listener and beloved patron of the podcast, Doug Ty, a.k.a. Spider Fighting. He describes his work as, quote, instrumental beat music that straddles the non-existent line between aging indie dork and backpack boom bap. And I think it's pretty cool. So if you like what you hear on the show, you can feel free to check out more from him at soundcloud.com slash spiderfighting. I got to tell sound, you, I, soundcloud.com I did not, I did not un- Okay. I did not understand more than every other word of that description of the musical genre, but that just makes me more excited for it. 
Well, luckily for you, you're going to get to actually hear the tunes, uh, you know, when the show comes out. So you can check that out. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Alistair Overeem went out there like a young Dan Gable and used some timely takedowns to turn the tide against Augusto Sakai. It even made Daniel Cormier hoot with joy. And in round number two, there's a Diaz reportedly plotting a return to the cage early next year, but this time the Diaz is Nick Diaz. And in round number three, amid a spate of last minute fight cancellations, the UFC has announced a return to Yaz Island. So does that mean they're also going back to fight Island or is this a, is this a different place or um, I mean, what's the, what's the beach towel situation? Yeah, I will figure it out, I guess. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Quinn Anderson, who writes, Ben recently said that stumbling after a fight should be considered a TKO. Ben, did you say that? It's not what I said. That's In fact, the opposite of what I said. What I said was the rule should be that... If you stump like at the end of the like end of the fight where the dude got dropped with a head kick by Zach Cummings, uh, Alessio DiCirico, I believe it was. If you can get up and walk back to your corner with three stumbles or fewer, then there's no TKO. We go to the scorecards. If you hit okay. that fourth stumble on the way back, that's when we declare the TKO. Correct you on a fact, Quinn yeah, Anderson. Don't- don't give Ben the opportunity to correct you on the fact he will absolutely Don't do it do every it. single Don't time. Don't you dare do it. Quinn Anderson continues, while he was joking, my legitimate question is, can judges include between round behavior to determine the previous round score? Should they? If a fighter takes 10 seconds to stand up, breathes in an exhausted manner, or doesn't know where they are, aren't those signs that he, she lost the previous five minutes? Analyzing the one minute break seems like invaluable scoring info to me. Discuss if you would. Thanks. Now, Ben, I am not aware of a rule that would prohibit such such a thing. I assume that if you're a judge, you're sitting there at cage side, you can see what's happening pretty much all the time. If one fighter... Uh, take some time to collect themselves, take some time to, to lift themselves up off the canvas, maybe even walks toward the wrong corner, which is a thing we've seen in the past. In fact, this weekend, uh, I can't remember what round it was. might have been, was either the end of round three or the end of round four. Augusto Sakai took kind of a long time to get himself up off the mat and, and slump back over to his corner. Can the, uh, what's your opinion or, or if you have any knowledge of the rules here, can the judge use that? I would think they can. I, I don't know why they wouldn't be able to. Well, what do you mean when you say can? Like they could use any criteria they want, really. Like we've seen some judges go in there apparently using their own made-up criteria. So like it's not like you can see inside their mind. Like they definitely change their scorecard because of something they saw in between rounds. I mean they do expect you to, I think, have your scorecard pretty much done as soon as the round ends and ready to turn in. So it's not like you have the full minute necessarily to sit there and decide on your score if you're a judge. But – I would ask, okay, two things about this that come to mind. The first one is walk into the wrong corner. I'm honestly surprised that doesn't happen more often just anyway, regardless of how that round went for you. Like, even if you won the round, it's kind of confusing. Like you, you come out of one corner, you fight, your guys can be all over the place. And then as soon as they blow the horn, you're expected to just know right away unless without hearing your guys which way your corner is. I could see how – Many different things could cause you to walk toward the wrong corner. It's not necessarily because you're getting your ass kicked in there. 
But two, when you think about when it actually happens where you see somebody take a long time to kind of get up and make it back to their corner or need some assistance to get back to their corner, something like that, like your your coach is picking you up like we saw with Zhang Wai Li in that uh, Yuani and Jaychik fight or having to you know have somebody hook you under the arm and direct you in the right way so that you're not stumbling around trying to find your, your stool. Usually, doesn't that happen at the end of a round where it wasn't too much in doubt who won? Yeah, you'd think I, it should be academic at that point. You don't often see yeah. the person who won the round uh, suddenly take five when, yeah. when the, the horn sounds. They don't sprawl out on the canvas and give, give themselves time for a little rest there before they head back over to their corner. Uh, yeah, I would think that it, it it would be should be a round that was self-explanatory. If you have an abundance of, of evidence after the round is over that maybe one person won and the other person lost, you probably would already know how you're going to score it. But who knows yet, how these, these judges do things these days? Like, I don't think uh, the stuff you do 45 seconds into the one-minute break is really going to impact the judges. I think by that point, it's probably settled in their minds. I do think, though, that at the end of a close fifth round, at the end of a fight, if one guy is standing there with his hands up in the air and the other guy is bent over at the waist, like gripping his shorts and, and staring at the floor – I think that can sometimes have an effect on the judges. And I've what seen if, it in, in MMA gyms. I've seen it where they're like, hey, at the end of the rounds, at the end of practice, everybody, get your hands up and start running around the mat like you won and you know you won. And get that get into that habit because there's a chance it might affect the judges. And it's not like it costs you too much to do it once the fight is already over. So like, just get in the practice of doing it right away. What if 45 seconds into the break between rounds, you turn, especially in the empty arena to the judges, and you're like, I probably lost that one, huh? <laughs> I think that, could that affect the scores? I, if, you, if you sit down on the stool, let out a huge sigh and go, yeah, I guess he got me there, huh? Mm-hmm. Maybe, that, maybe that one will, will hurt you on the scorecards. He's, he's got one coming here. <laughs> See, there's a more positive spin on it. I appreciate what you're doing. All right, next question this week comes to us from true romance character Lee Donowitz. Okay. Who writes, I heard OSP in his post-fight talk with Anik give credit to taking up mountain biking recently for his KO win. As a guy who has rode the shit out of my trek these last six months, I was thinking, man, do I secretly have new power in my hands and not even know it? Because that would be cool. But also (laughs) kind of useless because my martial times in the gym are in the past and I ain't throwing a punch at anyone out in these streets in 25 plus years since a dust up with friends over a backyard tackle football game. Anyways, I'll do it. In the new great wide open 205 pounds is a mountain biking OSP a player. Yeah, a so lot of ben, people don't know this, Chad, that uh, the best base for MMA is mountain biking. Well, the power comes from the legs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you got there working on your posterior chain out in the hills on your trek. You can imagine that that would – that it probably is the equivalent of uh, going out in the backyard and hitting a giant tire with a sledgehammer for 45 minutes. does the same thing for your power is what I've heard. I mean, we know that the black beast Derek Lewis took up cycling in some form. And he's dangerous. Right. He's a dangerous man on his feet. Dangerous, dangerous man. Coincidence? Power, power gained out on those streets, getting his road work in. More to the point here, Ben. On your Oven left, Saint motherfuckers. Prue. On your left in this hoe. Oven St. Prue defeats Alonzo Menefield. Second round KO here, kind of like a counter left hook as, as Menefield is charging in. Shuts the lights out to the point where uh, 
Alonzo Menifield winds up flat on his tummy on the uh, on the canvas, which is never a place you want to be if you are involved in a professional prize fight and uh, spurs the referee to step in and, and call things off there. Now, what about this idea, Ben? Because obviously, if John Jones is going to move up to heavyweight, vacate the title, maybe ultimately end up fighting Stipe Miocic for the heavyweight title, you would think uh, that would grant new life to everyone in that division. Uh, you know, clearly dudes like Glover Tashira, Tiago Santos are kind of in the running now to be uh, number one contender. We're going to have the vacant title fight between uh, Dominic Reyes and Jan Blagovitz to determine your new champion. Would you buy Ovin St. Prue now? Are we just, are we basically erasing the whiteboard and we're saying from here on out, everyone's zero and zero and it's new life for all the 205 pound fighters out there because Ovin St. Prue is two and four in his last six. Uh, but he does get this win over Alonzo Manyfield. And obviously the, his most recent loss, the split decision to Ben Rothwell was up there at heavyweight. He's back now yeah. at 205 pounds, but are you buying him as one of these guys that, that should essentially get a, a clean slate and be allowed to, to dive right back into the 205 pound title pool? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think that we are in a clean slate kind of area where get your resumes together, you know, like now's the time, but that's not going to last forever. Like that's a window of opportunity. I think right now when it feels like there's chaos in the division, there's a, there's a power vacuum at the top. We're waiting to see who can kind of stake their claims. And I think that that that's going to be a transition period that doesn't last that long. And so what you do right now, like for instance, getting a one punch knockout uh, back at light heavyweight on one of these fight night cards, this is a good time to do that. I, I think that, for someone like Ovin St. Prue, it's probably going to take a couple more before he's really in that conversation. But as we've talked about before, the pool here is not super deep. Like it's, it, it used to be the top three or so at light heavyweight. Like that's where you'd see uh, the concentration of talent. And then after that, it gets shallow in a hurry. But if you take away the top guy who's been reigning over the division for damn near 10 years and everybody else they were kind of roadblocked mainly by previous losses to that guy. And so you take him out of the picture and everybody could kind of look around. And, and if you're going to try to point fingers at somebody and be like, this guy can't vie for the light heavyweight title because he has a loss to John Jones. And they're going to be like, well, so do you, man. So do, so do all of us. We're all here in the have a loss to John Jones club. Like now let's figure it out amongst each other with him gone. Who deserves to get in there? And so he wins one more. Looks pretty good. Sure, he's in that conversation. I mean, that's why it's an exciting time to be a UFC light heavyweight right now because it might not take that much. Because uh, especially once we get through this vacant title fight situation, and you're looking at guys like you know uh, Yuri Prochaska, uh, he's probably going to be in that conversation. Uh, you're looking at guys like uh, the what's the guy who just beat uh, Anthony Smith, and now I can't remember his name for some reason. Uh, Alexander oh, Rockich, yeah, Rockich, uh, guys like that. You, you know, when you had Tiago Santos and Glover Teixeira still match up, that looks like one where, like, if, especially if somebody like Tiago Santos comes out there and wins big, he could be next in line. Like, it's just not really going to take that much to make your case right now. You just don't want to fuck up during this period, though, because if you go out there and you lose one of these, like, then we're kind of drawing a line through you on the whiteboard like everybody got the clean slate but the clean slate won't last forever yeah this this fight was the first time during the the empty arena era when i could recall it seemed like at one point uh 
the corners weren't necessarily yelling at each other, but you had two very vociferous corners in this fight. Uh, and I think at one point, Alonzo Menafield landed a strike and his corner yelled, you know, nice, like they do, like you do when your guy lands a strike. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ovin St. Prue's corner, who I believe is Eric Taylor and, and the team from down there in, in Nashville, they all yelled, that was nothing. So like, <laughs> we're not, not only we're cheering our guys, we're kind of lobbying back and forth here in the empty arena when you know everyone can hear you. Uh, maybe about what constitutes a significant strike. I don't know. See, that's some next level shit that that next level empty arena shit that I can get into. Like, let's, let's get into the psychological warfare while we're all just shouting stuff, trying to influence these judges who, for the sake of argument, it seems like we always imagine are just malleable little lumps of clay. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from the Corgi King who writes, what do you think Michelle Pereira's ceiling is in the UFC? Can he become more than just a fun action fighter and be a real contender at 170? When he wasn't throwing crazy spinny shit, he was landing some very effective conventional techniques. His post-fight interview was also pretty funny and looks he looks good getting off the bus. Please discourse. So Ben, the, the, obviously uh, Michelle Pereira gets the uh, uh, third round submission win here over Zalim Imadaev uh in what was a you know a pretty one-sided affair really Imadaev didn't really have much for Michel Pereira throughout this fight uh and in that in so doing I think Michel Pereira turned in arguably his most uh impressive performance in the UFC so far and it seemed to me like he proved if he turns the dial down just a little bit no nope. turns it down nope. from from 10 to 9 mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. can go out there put in 15 solid minutes of work and actually get himself a win. Or he can crank it up to 11 and you bring joy, the opposite way. joy and happiness through the land. I joy mean, do you, happiness for all of five minutes and then, well, okay. Are you saying that the slog from there on out, you felt this was him dialed down just cause no unnecessary bit, flipping. Yeah. Well, he wasn't, he was, see, here's the thing. Like, uh, I feel like Michelle Pereira has a has a couple of different showboating styles, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he can do the thing where he'll go out there and put his hands behind his back. He'll throw a spinning kick. He'll he'll go for a uh, a showtime kick off the fence. I'm kind of on board for all that stuff. And hey, man, I, I like a fucking cartwheel kick as much as the next guy. Okay, <laughs> but like clearly, that's the kind of stuff that's going to make you tired if you do it. So. I kind of feel like he was in the sweet spot this weekend. Kind of okay. like uh, he he wasn't boring by any stretch of the imagination. He put in a complete fight. Didn't really seem to slow down over the course of this thing. Absolutely wore Imadaev around the cage like a button. Uh, and then emerges with what appeared to be a very deft rear naked choke victory. Like pretty much as soon as he got the opportunity to throw that bad boy on there, he took it. And, you know, the the stoppage was a little funky. I don't know that Imadaev yeah. actually got the chance to tap out, but it was also late enough in the fight, and we had enough data already yeah. on how things were going that we weren't exactly climbing over the cage walls to protest this thing. Yeah, either. and see, that's a rare thing. Like that tells you how one side of the fight was because normally we are all set to complain and yell at refs over some shit like that because it did seem like he didn't really tap, but it, we also all saw what was going on there enough to be like, yeah, bro, but you were gonna lose. Like we all saw that we all, you were not far away from that point. So him getting in there a little early, we're not mad at it, but okay. I see your point that if you can just do the fun stuff that is either serving a direct purpose or is not costing you a bunch of energy, then maybe that is the sweet spot for Michelle Pierre. I mean, he did Chad at one point 
He kissed his hand. Yeah. Held it up and just held it there for a while to give you a chance to look at it. Like he did not make a fist again with that hand. Gave you a chance to see that he's going to, that he has something in mind he wants to do with that hand he just kissed so tenderly. And then slaps him upside the head with that hand and then shows it to him again. Like, ah, see, I told you about this hand. Now that's the kind of shit where you're not expending a ton of energy to do it. But damn it, it is fun as all hell. Now, yeah, still he, though, he the sent question. sent a telegram to Salim and Medaev <laughs> announcing his intentions to slap him. And then he did it and landed it. It was yeah. amazing. Now, the question though, still about like what's his ceiling in the UFC? Like, I don't think you do that all the way to the title. Like, I think it's fun. I, I, I when I hear Daniel Cormier trying to say that he should stop doing that stuff and focus up a little more and, and fight a little bit more conventionally, I get almost angry. Like, don't you dare take this away from us, especially. And you look around and what's going on in this era where it's just like un- interchangeable undercard fighters over and over again. Sometimes the same people three times in like two months. And then you see a guy come along where you're like, okay, he's on the card. I can count on some fun weirdness to go down. Yes. Like you, you got me in my seat paying attention for that. There's so few of those guys right now. Don't take it away from us. You know, we need this. But I, I will concede the point that there is – you can still do the fun Michel Piera stuff without just wearing yourself out unnecessarily. But I also think that when you just look at how he matches up against the very top of the division, uh, I don't know if this is the guy who wins them all. I yeah. think this is a guy who entertains the hell out of us and wins more than he loses. And that's good enough. God damn it. At least for me. Yeah, no, I agree. And he doesn't, I mean, he seems like a very skilled fighter, frankly, when he he's does. out there, like just, just doing in regular stuff. He's obviously fucking enormous for 170 pounds. Uh, he's a heck of an athlete. Uh, and he seems to have speed and agility and, and pretty good, uh, accuracy. Like he's out there tagging Zalim and Medayev with, with, uh, you know, one, two combos in between the slaps and whatnot. And like, you know, kind of making it look easy against a guy who's regarded as a pretty technical boxer. So I'm, I agree with you. I don't know that that I'm gonna like buy a a, a ticket on the Michel Pereira Express straight to the top. But like, he's definitely a dude that I'm very glad to have around because he's gonna yeah. be fun no matter what it is. I just think in this performance, it seemed like Michel Pereira maybe figured out he doesn't necessarily have to do all the backflips and whatnot that he was doing against. Uh, Diego Sanchez, you know, wear himself out. He can kind of play play it in the in the middle a little bit, and maybe be a little bit more effective. And I think like if he can figure that out, then you're right. He becomes a guy that you want to watch, and also a guy who's who's pretty skilled and and pretty good, and and you know might be able to 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 become a contender. And I, I don't know, but we'll just have to wait and see how that stuff goes. But like, I'm definitely not counting him out at this point. He seems he seems like he's got enough skills to make an at least you know respectable run out there at 170 pounds yeah uh i believe we have a french name here Henri poincare okay what's uh assume is a, a philosopher of some kind or a let's see it's a real quick google search here yeah probably should have done this before the show oh yeah oh yeah french, french mathematician, mathematician. theoretical physicist engineer and philosopher of science okay there so you I go I was right on the money there. I don't know uh, if you knew this about him, but he's often described as a polymath. Okay. Well, he's he, here. I'm going to read his question here about Chael He Sonnen. looks serious as hell, man. We got to take this guy seriously. 
He does. He's got the uh, the glasses on the string. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a guy who's not to be fucked with. He writes, I was listening to Chael once again talk about the time he, quote, was one minute away from being world champion, and this time adding in the excuse that his corner told him the fifth round was actually the fourth round. My question, how come as the story keeps being retold by Chael or anyone else, we drop the fact that he was juiced to the tits. Okay, that's maybe lost something in translation there from the original French. Uh, You think you know what he means. And would never have been world champ. He didn't almost beat Silva. He almost got a no contest against Silva. He had a <laughs> okay. 17 to 1 TE ratio. Who knows what else he was on? Did Chael just get to rewrite his own history and everyone would, with but me was fine with the false narrative? Uh, okay. I mean, That's consider the source point. is yeah. kind of all I have to say. Like, it's 2020 and we're listening to Chael Sonnen talk. I feel like we're kind of all on board with you're going to get a version of the truth. You're well, going to get Chael Sonnen's version of what hap- what had happened was. And I kind of get what he's saying in that, like, if he would have just held on and won that decision over Anderson Silva, he would have got the moment of standing there in the cage with his hands up and then wrapping the belt around his waist. And yeah. sure, like... It would have been it, one of the greatest upsets in UFC history for about, what, like two weeks or whatever until the, the news of the yeah. uh, elevated TE ratio came out. It, it would have it been taken away from him subsequently, but... He would have had that moment. I don't understand what the how it's an excuse though. The uh, that his corner told him that the fifth round was the fourth round. Like either way, he got caught in the triangle. I don't know. Like is he saying he would have played it safer because he was just doing what he had been doing the entire fight, which was take Anderson Silva down and beat him up there, and he got caught. Like I don't know how the fifth round would have changed, like or how the understanding of the rounds would have helped him escape the triangle choke or kept him from getting it in the first place. I'm not so sure, but. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is one thing, though, that I think fighters should try to learn something from. It's a fine line because like we said, I think last week we were talking about Sugar Sean O'Malley being out there kind of maybe a little bit overexposed uh, and having too like doing a little too much thinking out loud in the wake of this loss to Cheeto Vera and it not being the best of looks for him. But the other side of it is that Chael Sonnen, as a guy who has like been kind of constantly on media properties in some sense for years and years where he's either like as a talking head on ESPN or as a Bellator commentator or just doing his own kind of bits that he puts out via social media and stuff, like being somebody who can go out there and talk directly to people or who is just a good guy to, you know, he'll pick up the phone when you call, he'll do interviews, he'll do all that kind of stuff. Like it puts you in a position where you get to at least have a chance to shape the narrative around your own career and around what's going on, like with you and what has gone on. And at times it can even allow you to put like a revisionist history spin on things a little bit. Like some fighters, it seems like, and sometimes I think this is just a fighter themselves. And sometimes it's their management. Like, uh, some fighters, their management will attempt to make themselves seem indispensable by being the block between you and the media. But then that means that we just don't hear from you as much and you don't get a chance to have a say in the conversation as much. Like people are going to form an opinion about you one way or another, but they're going to form it on probably less information and different information. Whereas you got, if you got a chance to get out there and kind of advocate on your own behalf, uh, I think that that helps you a lot of times. And I think Chael Sonnen is a good example of that. And and more fighters should try to learn from that because there was a whole bunch of fighters where like you try to get in touch with them at a time when it would do them some good to be able to be like, 
have a chance to say, here's what had happened. And if you're not around to say, here's what had happened, then people, it's not like they're going to stop talking about whatever the thing is they're talking about you. It just means that you don't get to have a say in that, that conversation. In a, an alternate timeline where Chael wins that fight, I wonder how we would regard that incident today, because I don't know if people weren't around at the time, maybe they don't know quite how big it seemed like, especially as that fight was playing out because Chael had really, I guess, as everyone knows, talked his way into this big spectacle fight with Anderson Silva, but kind of leading up to it, you know, Anderson was still somewhat at the top of his game at the time. We hadn't really seen him lose uh, in the UFC up to that point. We, you know, he was considered obviously the favorite and like kind of, uh, you know, if you, if you were going to put up a Vitor Belfort, no known weaknesses style graphic on the screen, you might as well do it for Anderson Silva at that point in his career. So like as that fight played out and it started to dawn on you, like, oh my God, like Trail Sonnen is actually doing the thing that in many ways he talked about doing headed into this fight and like he is doing it successfully and he might well win this damn thing. And then of course you get the hail Mary triangle in the last couple minutes of the fifth round. And and it's one of the greatest comeback victories. Uh, one of the greatest saves, I guess you could say of all time. I wonder if Chael had like had grounded out another couple minutes and ended up getting the win. Obviously that would have been regarded as one of the greatest upsets in UFC history. And he would have got, as you said, that moment in the cage and we all would have, would have felt, some kind of way about it. Uh, and then a couple, a week or two later, we would have found out about the positive drug test. Obviously, I wonder how we would regard all that stuff because I remember at the time, you know, obviously Chael put on a heck of a performance, uh, you know, aided by substances or not. And then there was this sense where we're all like, okay, maybe we actually kind of dodged a bullet here that he did not win. I wonder if he had one and you fast forward to 2020. I wonder how we would all look back and remember that incident now if we would like, still regarded as as a uh uh you know kind of a disaster that Chael tested positive or i wonder if we would all would we look upon it still with with the same kind of whimsy that we do now just sort of like oh he almost pulled it off if he had pulled it off i wonder how we would we would judge it in yeah hindsight yeah it's a fair question i mean the other thing to remember at the time was that anderson silva was not super popular like people uh, Everybody respected the skills kind of, but that was the height, like that was during the height of people just getting pissed off with how he was choosing to perform and still clearly win. Like those fights with like Demi and Maya, that fight with, uh, uh, who was the other one? Um, I can't remember now, but he had a couple of those fights there where he was clearly like could do anything he wanted and was just kind of fucking around a little bit. And so the big promise of Chael Sonnen was, I mean, people can say like he talked his way into those fights, but he won a couple key fights that he had to win. And like he beat Nate Marquardt, beat Yushin Okami, like that stuff where like he had to win those fights to kind of knock off other would-be contenders and put himself in that situation. But then he also was the guy to be like, okay, the thing that I am offering you is that I'm going to talk enough shit to this guy beforehand that he will be motivated to come out here and try to hurt me. He will not be able to just kind of like sit back and give you a really boring title fight victory. Like I'm going to, I'm going to poke the the bear in the cage enough so that you will be motivated to, to come and watch it because you believe he's motivated to come and hurt me. And it worked like it was a, it was the exact right approach for that time. 
Yeah, Anderson Silva had had uh, a stinker with Talis Latis. Talis Latis, that's who I was trying to think. I'm pretty sure the Patrick Cote fight was also. Yeah, it was not headed that great. direction before Cote blew his knee out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, that is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, the discussion that we've been having about Alistair Overeem, uh, both on this show and over on the Patreon as of late, has centered a lot about Overeem kind of transforming himself from this one-time powerhouse, a guy who back in the in the early 2010s uh, was just blitzing everybody with sheer brute force, but a guy that we we knew all the all along was very skilled because he had come from this uh, kickboxing background. We knew that that he had the goods. But somewhat improbably now, into his 40s, he has uh, transformed himself from this like brute force fighter into the consummate crafty veteran who is out there with his wit and his guile, uh, turning these things around and, and, and pulling out win after win here as he, in his own words, makes one final run to what he hopes is a, a heavyweight title fight. And this Augusto Sakai fight fits right in, man. It's like, it's like we talked about it. This is what Overeem does. And then he went out there and gave us a shining example of uh, the 40-year-old Alistair Overeem performance against Augusto Sakai, ultimately emerging uh, with a TKO victory right there at the beginning of the final round. I think it was 26 seconds into the fifth. He uh, he TKO'd Augusto Sakai with elbows and punches on the ground. But throughout the first you know two and a half, three rounds of this thing, it looked like Augusto Sakai was was going to win the day. Uh, until over him started mixing in those takedowns, made him tired, uh, beat him up on the, on the ground and ultimately gets the TKO win here. I guess my first question for you is did Overeem rope-a-dope this motherfucker? Because there was like, was this part of Overeem's strategy in your opinion to just kind of let Augusto Sakai push him up against the cage, uh, and throw every bungalow he had in his toolbox? Because that's what it looked like to me. I don't know if that wasn't necessarily plan A, like that we're going to let this guy just wail on you and see if he wears himself out. Because I think we both know if you go in there with that being your plan in heavyweight MMA, there's a good chance you fuck around and get knocked out. But I do think that one of Overeem's strengths right now at this point in his career is that he is resilient enough that he can take a shot here or there. You know, he he, does, he he hasn't fallen prey completely to just like a glass chin like a lot of guys develop kind of later in their career when the hits just start to pile up. But he also, he, when he gets hit, he doesn't freak out. Like he is such a veteran at this point that he knows how to hang in there. And unless you're hitting him with that overwhelming shit, like that Francis Ngannou shit or even that biggie boy, just break your whole damn mouth kind of shit. Unless you're you're really nailing him with one of those clean, perfect shots, he can take it and 
he maintains his composure enough that he's not taking a whole bunch of them all at once. You know, we kind of saw the same thing uh, in the last fight there, like where uh, he, he had moments like in that uh, the, the fight where he came out the, the wall Harris fight where he, he got hurt early on. It looked like could have easily been stopped, you know, but like, he's got just enough to awareness to stay in there I think, though, his plan was, like, let's set up high pace early, make Augusto Sakai match that pace, however you have to do it. I don't think, like, getting beat on would have been his preferred way to keep that high pace, but I think that he definitely wanted to make Augusto Sakai expend a lot of energy early on, like, make him think maybe there's a chance he can get you out of here early on and expend that energy and that emotional energy of getting that adrenaline spike of maybe thinking he's close to a finish at times. But then also like the thing that he is so good at now is that if you give over him some time in the cage with you, he's going to figure something out about you. Like he's just such an experienced savvy fighter at this point and his game is well-rounded enough, but like not in the way where he just goes out there and tries to emulate what other people have done. Like he, he can, be like, okay, I'm, I want to get you down and beat you up on the mat there. And he's turned himself into kind of a surprising ground and pound specialist. But the way he gets there is not by going out there and shooting double legs on people. Like he's figured out a good like clinch game foot sweep kind of approach a lot of times that keeps people guessing. And he's, you know, you're fighting Alistair over him and you're in close with him. You're worried about his hands and you're worried about his knees. And it's easy for you to forget about his ability to foot sweep you or something uh, kind of out of nowhere. It's such a, a perfectly tailored game to where he is at this point in his career because he doesn't have that same just like overpowering physical ability anymore. He's not the same athlete he was. He's not as fast as he used to be, not as explosive, but he's managed to close those holes as best he can just by being a smart, super experienced fighter at this point. Yeah, there was a couple of times in this fight uh, where Augusto Sakai would push him up against the cage and he would let loose with a, a flurry of punches and over him would just kind of cover up and, and take it uh, where the, you know, he would then circle off the cage and he had on his face, what I would describe as classic over him face, yeah. sort of like dry, understated, not excitable, even keel guy who was just kind of like, okay, well that that's the thing that happened, but I'm all right. Uh, he, I, you know, when he, when you would mention the takedowns, the takedowns he had in this fight, which he, you know, midway through round three, as he kind of turned the tide here with these takedowns, uh, and got high school wrestling coach Daniel Cormier on commentary to break down his his takedown technique here, where over him is basically like grabbing a single and then kind of rolling backwards by hook or by crook, really, to get Augusto Sakai down. But uh, you know, that's interesting. I feel like every time out at forty years old, Overeem is out here showing us a, a, like a one 1% new wrinkle in his game, like a new thing he's got that he can do, which I appreciate for a guy who's been around as long as we've all been alive. And yet at the same time, the, the th- tough thing about where he is right now is it seems like the UFC keeps waiting for him to turn into late career stepping stone. Right. Like Just because definitely not probably not supposed to win this fight against Augusto Sakai. Right. Right. And like also maybe not supposed to win that fight against Walt Harris, especially the way they spent the entire week being like this is the emotional Walt Harris story for like where he is in his journey after uh, his stepdaughter was murdered. And then Alistair Overeem was out there and wins it. And it's like. Okay, they just sucked all the air out of the room. And also, did you cast Alistair Overeem as an unwitting villain there? But 
it seems like uh, fight promoters kind of know one way to do these things for the most part. And when they see a guy like Alistair Overeem, who has been through it all and has a loss to the current champion and to a couple of the top contenders is 40 years old and not looking like the same guy he was anymore. They, they do the math on that and they come up with, all right, use him to get some, some of that name value to rub off on somebody else, somebody younger who you have a little bit more time to work with. And there's more of a future there. And yet they keep putting them in those fights and he keeps winning them. And still, if you look at who's ahead of him in the rankings, or you look at kind of the top couple guys hanging around the division, I don't think he matches up well. Like, I think if he fights Francis and Ganu again, he probably gets his soul knocked out of his body again. I think if he fights Stipe again, it probably goes worse for him than the last time he fought him. And yet, I think that he's still going to beat a whole bunch of the guys in the top 10 and maybe get more and more frustrated if you keep giving him these fights where you're not looking for him to go anywhere necessarily. Like the best he can do is kind of stay put. Yeah, 29-year-old Augusto Sakai came into this fight on a six-fight win streak. So this didn't necessarily seem like one that the UFC had had set up to to reinflate the ovarian business. They seemed like this was a a potential uh, showcase fight for Augusto Sakai. Of course, it didn't work out that way. Alistair Overeem, too wily, too wily of a veteran. But I think, yeah. Wily AF. You make a good point. I'm not totally sure how far he can go or what the future is here. He himself has indicated that he knows he's kind of, you know, running on fumes, running out of time here. He said he has maybe four fights left. And so I'm not sure exactly what the immediate future is for him, except that uh, he called out Derek Lewis after this, just because Derek Lewis had been talking that shit online uh, during the actual fight. Maybe Ben up to this point, the, the best use of the on-screen tweet so far in the UFC, like a relatively new, yeah. Uh, addition to the UFC broadcast, which is mostly just people tweeting stuff like 10-9 Sakai or wow, what a fight, hashtag UFC Vegas 9 or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> in this in this instance, Derek Lewis is actually uh, trying to work an angle here, playing an angle during the Overeem Sakai fight, and it looked like it worked out for him. I dig it. That is a, that is a smart play by Derek Lewis there. And that's a, the, you know, we would we would watch that. That is a... That is a fight we would all gladly watch. That is some hashtag would watch shit. All right, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll go ahead and move on to, to round number two here, Ben. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, this week, the rare Are You Fucking Kidding Me where I'm going to reach outside the MMA bubble for my oh, Are okay. You Fucking Kidding Interesting. Me. Interesting. Are you aware of what happened to the big homie Novak Djokovic at the U.S. Open? Oh, yeah, I did. I did see this video. Yeah. My man gets a little frustrated, hits a tennis ball, kind of just not even seeming to look where he's hitting it and doesn't hit it hard for a professional tennis player, but hits it hard for a ball that winds up striking a line judge and older woman in the neck. Yeah. And then she goes down like she's been shot by a damn sniper in the stands. Yeah. And there's a moment before he, you know, he does walk over there. I can't wait to find out who the are you fucking kidding me is for (laughs) here. He goes over to check on her and does all this stuff. But before he does that, there's a moment where you watch the tape. He hits the ball over there. It hits her in the neck. She goes down and he kind of throws up his hands in a gesture that to me looks like, oh, come on. Oh, you are you fucking kidding me? He might be asking in that moment. I I just got to say. 
And are you fucking kidding me? Kind of of delight to watch another sport go through the kind of shit show that it feels like MMA is pretty used to. Like we have like the equivalent of tennis players hitting the ball at the line judge's neck. You know, we've been through some shit like that before in MMA. Roy Nelson kicking a ref in the butt. People shoving a refs. You've got commentators in, in shouting matches with the refs and MMA. It's kind of a great are you fucking kidding me moment to see another sport deal with this kind of bullshit. And also, man, you know that if this were the UFC, they would have been like, okay, the rules say he should be disqualified. But he's also the number one tennis player in the world, so it doesn't apply to him. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Ben, did you see this thing uh, where I don't know if this was just a wrinkle in the reporting, the reporting or the if the UFC actually did that. But it appeared that the UFC has tried to book two fights in a row for Kamzat Chimaev. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That they want him to fight Gerald Mearshart at uh, this event on September 19th. And then if that goes well, they want to turn around and, and book him a fight against Damian Maya at, at Fight Island. You, you know who's not taking this? Or maybe he's taking it exactly perfectly well is, is Gerald Mearshart. I, I've seen this, uh, yeah. I follow this him dude, on Twitter. He, he's going to get out there and he's going to post the am I a joke to you I love uh, it. meme. You fucking kidding me? Amazing. Gerald Mearshart uh, handling all of this in exactly the, the way that I probably would, frankly. Also, when you're going to go ahead and just book two straight up fights that you hope are going to really vault a guy into stardom for this young fighter you're hoping for big things out of. Do you want to just then uh, put a little message and send it via carrier pigeon to the top of Mount Zion where the MMA gods right. reside? Because they're listening. Yeah. They're, the yeah. MMA gods hear you when you do shit like this. Yeah, you know what? This this is going to get you a hearty, are you fucking kidding me, from the MMA gods. Yeah. And that's what you don't want. But yeah. fucking kidding me with this? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, your guy, Nicholas Robert Diaz, at 37 years of age, looks to have gotten himself back in fighting shape and wants to get back in there and throw them bungalows again, man. According to Ariel Helwani, post some stuff from uh, that he says he's gotten from Nick Diaz's manager, said that he's been uh, working out, dieting, getting his shit back together, then did a test cut down somewhere in the 170s range and uh, is looking to fight pretty soon. Now, Nick Diaz, last time he fought was in 2015, that fight with Anderson Silva that uh, ended up, you know, initially decision win for Anderson Silva, overturned to a no contest when everybody's popping positive for all kinds of drugs. Last time Nick Diaz won a fight, you know when that was, Chad? Um. It was, I was a kid when it happened. Um, you were never a kid. I think I was in fifth grade right after A-Team. I remember it. the broadcast came on right after A-Team. I watched 2011, it. 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah. When he beat BJ Penn at uh, UFC 137. Oh, so that, I mean, does that really even count? Yes, it counts. You still counting those BJ Penn wins? Yes. Okay. All right. Just uh, checking. 
I mean, so earlier, I like, earlier, that was like, I was watching fall guy, uh, probably in third grade. Earlier in 2011, he also had that win in that crazy, one of the greatest one round fights of all time against Paul Daly and strike four. So either way, whether you want to count the BJ Penn win or not, he won a fight in 2011. That was the last time since then that he lost that decision to Carlos Condit, lost the decision to George St. Pierre, lost the decision to Anderson Silva. Haven't seen him since 2015. Now Nick Diaz wants to come back. Here's the thing. Let's take it just on face value, the whole thing that he's serious about wanting to come back. We've seen that Nick Diaz's life may be spun a little bit out of control at some points without perhaps MMA as a guiding thing in his life. So maybe for him to have something like that to focus on, to get himself back in shape for, to come back for, maybe that is ultimately a good thing for him. But if Nick Diaz comes back at 37 and wants to get back, jump back in the pool at, you know, 170 pounds, let's say, I think there's going to be a whole lot of people putting their hands up saying, me, me, give me that fight. Just because he's still got a name, you know, they're probably not going to throw Nick Diaz in there with just like a purposely easy fight because he's not going to come cheap. The UFC is going to want to leverage that name value for something that feels worthwhile. They're probably also thinking, man, you don't with Nick Diaz, you don't know how many fights you're going to get him for. He might come back, do one and then disappear again. You never know. So I'm thinking the UFC is probably going to throw him in there with somebody for real hoping to get a little bit of that Nick Diaz shine to rub off on them. Is this a good idea or not for Nick Diaz to get back into the, the business at with this kind of stuff likely waiting for him? Well, I mean, most recently we had seen a lot of TMZ videos of Nick Diaz coming and going from clubs. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's good to see him uh, do this test cut. I feel like you do a test cut. It makes me feel like you might actually be serious about this shit. Like yeah. you're not just, you're not hashtag just saying stuff like this is a thing that you might actually do. So yeah, uh, anybody can I, hit pads in a baggy t-shirt and look good for a couple of minutes and tell us that they're coming back. But you actually go through the, the, the t- short term misery of the test cut. You're right. That does say something a little different. Yeah. And like both Diaz brothers have always been uh, pragmatists, I guess you could say when it comes to, to MMA fighting, Nick Diaz, uh, the author of the of the classic quote when somebody asked him if he was excited to fight Anderson Silva and he was like, would you be excited to fight Anderson Silva? So uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, really. Like like those guys have always had a, a on one hand a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the with the game, with the sport. But on the other hand, I feel like it's totally understandable for them to feel that way. Uh, and even in a third way, I think it's probably positive for them to feel that way because these are two guys that have always been uh, pretty adamant about getting their money. Like Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz, they're not just going to show up and fight whoever at the whim of the UFC for whatever kind of money. Like these are these are guys who are actually going to make sure uh, that the checks are right before they they show up and and take on a high profile fight. So uh, I gotta think Nick Diaz will be relatively uh, deliberate and smart about who he signs on to fight. Like I've seen. Uh, Jorge Masvidal thrown around uh, as a possibility here. Obviously, like he was probably fight Nate again, and then if if Masvidal indeed won the that rematch, then maybe Nick Diaz makes sense. It's sort of like a uh, Karate Kid style. You beat up my little brother, and I'm now yeah. I'm going to show up at the schoolyard and and whoop you kind of a thing. Except that we're uh, all in our 30s, so it's weird. But okay, yeah, yeah late late 30s, <laughs> uh, and I don't necessarily know that at this point Nick would fare all that much better against Jorge Masvidal than Nate. Uh, so like physically, it's probably not a great idea. Uh, in other ways, maybe it is, maybe it's good that, that Diaz can get this structure back in his life, get back in the, in the cage and, and, you know, uh, get a few more fights before, before his athletic prime, like fully passes him by. I mean, I guess my question would be Ben over on the, 
uh, Patreon content last week on the on the Power Hour on Friday. We talked the first half of the show about Brock Lesnar and why Brock Lesnar continues to have this hold on on the heart of MMA. That every time you know he needs to renegotiate with WWE or whatever the the case may be, uh, we all kind of get infatuated all over again with the idea of Brock Lesnar returning to the sport and and we all kind of get our hopes up everybody gets their clicks on the headlines and then it it never really ends up materializing i guess i would ask you the the same sort of question about nate or nick diaz like obviously it's not it's not a a a perfect parallel because nick diaz has a longer history in the sport than brock lesnar nick diaz has has perhaps a more organic love for the sport than Brock Lesnar. Uh, but why are, why would be, why would we be at 37 years old kind of getting our hopes up to see Nick Diaz back in the cage again? When I would think in 2020, we, we all should know exactly what we are going to get here. Yeah. I mean, there's a fair point to make about, Hey, if we're going to have the conversation about why does Brock Lesnar still have such a hold on the hearts of MMA? Why does Nick Diaz? Nick Diaz has earned his a little more, but I also think it's because later in Nick Diaz's time with the UFC, we started to appreciate him as like, okay, this guy is out here saying stuff that at first sometimes sounds kind of crazy or just sounds like the rantings of a madman. But then when you actually think about it a little more, you go, wait a minute, maybe he is seeing parts of this game more clearly than the rest of us are. And like some of the stuff that Nick Diaz said about the fight game and what it is and how it works were kind of surprising, I think, to a lot of us at the time. But now a lot of it I still think about. Like his, I remember that conference call with him and George St. Pierre where he was talking about being the hero who comes in with the anti bullshit. And it was like, yeah, maybe, maybe to the, that's part of the appeal of Nick Diaz that we have a hard time letting go of, even if he's not necessarily winning fights. He still is going to come in here with the anti bullshit, Chad. Like he's Nick D is going to keep it as real as he can possibly keep it. And I think that there's definitely a hunger for that and that people like, like they just feel like the sport is more interesting for having Nick Diaz as a person around it. The question that I have is like, what do we realistically expect from Nick Diaz, the fighter at this point? Because I feel like in a way you could argue that. Nick Diaz, if he ever would play to his strengths a little more, could still be a, a, a good fighter. At this point. I mean, he always was keeping himself in good shape. The Diaz brothers were always out there, you know, running and cycling and like they were constantly training for the next triathlon and stuff like that. I do wonder about a guy who's 37 and had a style that was dependent in part on his ability to take punishment and just wear you out with volume in return. Like that doesn't always age so well, but he was also for throughout most of his career was an excellent grappler who would only use his grappling. If you made him like he was never going to really actively seek it out. If he could just get a little smarter with some of that, I don't know, maybe he, he goes in there and he surprises some people I just wonder, like, if Nick Diaz comes out, I, I was just looking at the the welterweight, like, top 10, and I was trying to think, who does Nick Diaz fight in there that he would be a favorite against? And I don't know. I, you know, it's hard for me to pick somebody out of that. Like, maybe somebody like Tyron Woodley, just because of what we think, uh, where we think Woodley is at, his, at this point in his career. I don't know. Like, if you put him up, let's just say it'll be really revealing when we see 
if he really is serious about coming back and then who the UFC tries to match him up with for the first fight. Like that's going to tell us a lot about what the UFC thinks you can do yeah. with Nick Diaz at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Masvidal is, is out there for him. Uh, a rematch with Robbie Lawler. Okay. Maybe is a thing, is a thing you could do. Uh, aside from that, this welterweight top 15 is a, a lot of killers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And B, and you know, he does, he, he's out here fighting them hitters. So yeah. he doesn't have, a we problem know that. With that, but like B, like not a lot of guys who are going to, uh, be a huge draw, right? Like, you think Nick Diaz uh, goes out there to fight somebody like Leon Edwards? Like, I don't. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a fight Nick Diaz would be terribly interested in just because it's not going to be a big, you know, Leon Edwards isn't going to bring a lot of promotional uh, oomph to the table. Like, I, you know, did, would he fight Vicente Luque? Probably not. Would he fight like Neil Magny or, or, or Jeff Neal? Like, I don't know, man. You start looking around the, the welterweight ranks that I don't know that there's a lot of like high profile, terrific fights for the guy right now, but maybe that maybe we're kind of just like getting ahead of ourselves here. Maybe you actually have to get the guy under contract. And and I would think if things play out the way they think they are, that, that Masvidal is probably your first move. And as you mentioned, regardless of what it says on the contract, you might only be getting Nick Diaz for a one fight deal here. So uh, maybe we're just looking a little bit too far down the road. Yeah. I mean, if the UFC offers him either Leon Edwards or Neil Magny, that is the UFC's way of telling Nick Diaz to go to hell. <laughs> yeah, because he's not taking that. Yeah. Uh, all right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Round number Headed back to Yaz Island, aka Fight Island, for upcoming UFC events, including UFC 253 on September 26 and UFC 254 on October the 24th. Those would be uh, big money pay per views that will include Israel Adesanya defending the middleweight title against Paulo Costa at UFC 253 and Habib Nurmagomedov potentially fighting uh, Justin Gaethje for the undisputed lightweight title at UFC 254. So not only a return to the United Arab Emirates for the UFC, but also a return to the overseas venue for two of the biggest events that are currently on the slate, two of the biggest fights that are coming up in the immediate future in the UFC. Uh, Obviously, it seemed like the first time we went over to Yaz Island, despite all of the, the mock that we made about the nature of Fight Island and what we were doing and, and how it seemed like a marketing gimmick for the Abu Dhabi tourism uh, department, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of seemed like a success for the UFC all the way around. Now you get back to the United States. We have a lot of uh, positive COVID tests pulling fights from the docket at the last minute. Are we looking at Fight Island if we're Dana White and we're thinking, oh man, those were the salad days, the halcyon days back in Fight Island when we were inside the bubble and everything was going smooth and we were pulling off big events. Is that part of the allure here for the UFC to go back to the UAE and uh, 
you know, ride that water slide where you come out the mouth of a, of a cobra on your I inner knew, tube. I knew there was no chance we'd get through this round without you mentioning that water slide. It's uh, literally the only thing I know about Abu Dhabi <laughs> aside from the fact that they do fights there and that there's Ferrari world. Ferrari yeah. world is in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I think, yeah, a big part of the appeal for the UFC is you go back there and the bubble thing works as we've seen. And we've seen it not just in MMA, but as we've seen other pro sports get back to operating, we've seen them take different approaches to it. Like NBA and the NHL both went to the whole bubble approach and it has worked very well. They do not see a whole bunch of just occasional COVID positives messing with their schedule. You know, they they get to roll right on ahead. Major League Baseball did not do the bubble and they they have dealt with that. And it seems pretty clear like especially if you just compare the UFC when the UFC was in Abu Dhabi, no problems with it there because there was such a stringent process to get in the bubble and the quarantining and everything before you kind of can mix with the general population once inside the bubble and they controlled it well enough that the virus can't get in really. And you, you can do it that way and your fight cards will hold together without these last like day of hours before fight time, positive tests showing up, which kind of makes it a little bit more damning that, that the UFC is only willing to do the bubble, it seems, when somebody else is paying for it. Because that's the thing we found out last time about the UFC's trip to Yaz Island was, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi saw it as a good opportunity to get some advertising in, maybe maybe do a little bit of sports washing, a little bit of light sports washing there uh, of the old image. But also for the UFC, it was Abu Dhabi is going to pay for all this stuff, all the testing and hotel rooms and meals and all that kind of stuff that you have to do to successfully run the bubble. They're going to foot the bill. And then the UFC came back to the apex and was just like, no, here we'll just kind of run it. We'll do our own testing and everything, but we won't really go through all those steps to set up the bubble. And we've seen how every single week, pretty much you deal with a, a COVID positive, making last minute alterations to your fight cards. It doesn't seem like an accident to me that when you've got coming up the two biggest that look like they could be easily be the, some of the biggest pay-per-views of the year, that's when you want to be back in the bubble. Because at least, like, if it's not like those fights can't still fall apart for COVID positives, but if they do, you find out kind of well in advance. Like, you find out because they can't get on the plane, basically, or like they're not allowed to come out of the hotel room. You don't have to find out the day of. So at least you have a chance to like plug some holes if you need to. But also, once you can get successfully all your guys inside the bubble, then the only kind of last minute cancellations you have to worry about are the ones that are just already kind of native to the sport of MMA. Like you, you know, you can't afford to have those fight cards fall apart because you're really counting on those to do big pay-per-view numbers. And so that's why you go back to Abu Dhabi, like somebody else going to pay for the bubble and we could really use the bubble right about now. Yeah. Plus logistically, it might just be easier to get Habib Nurmagomedov and Israel Adesanya in and out uh, of Abu Dhabi than it would be to try to book them for a thing at the apex. Uh, you know that we're going to do a, although if you can get Dan Hooker into the apex, you could get Israel Adesanya, but still, yeah, you're right. True. Uh, you know, we're going to do, we're going to redo all this marketing stuff, right? With the $50 beach towels and the, uh, sure, we still got some towels in the supply closet. Yeah. Or whatever they are. Uh, does the return to quote unquote fight Island seem even more gimmicky the second time around than it did the first time when much of the, the lead up was at least, uh, 
spent with us wondering where we were going to be, what it was going to be exactly, if we were really going to have an octagon on the beach, if these events were going to have their own unique look and feel. Of course, uh, once we actually get to Yaz Island, we found out, oh, okay, it's a place, it's just a place the UFC has actually already been before. It's not really even an island. It's just a man-made thing separated from the rest of uh, Abu Dhabi from like a, a man-made canal. Uh is is the I guess I guess I'm trying to say is the marketing for Fight Island the return going to be even more cloying than it was the first time around? Uh, in a way, maybe you benefit from we do not get our expectations up this time. Like we know exactly what it's going to be and what it's going to look like and all that stuff. And so now there's not the like build up and then disappointment of us finding out like oh you, you sounded for a minute like you were going to do something fun there and we should have known better. Like now we know what to expect. We know what it's going to be. And we will probably just instead focus on the legitimately dope fights that you have lined up for some of those events there. And we don't get too distracted by the other stuff just because we've, we've been through it once already. All right, let's do just saying stuff. And then, uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, have you seen the pictures online this week, uh, that have revealed to us that all this time, George St. Pierre has been able to grow hair. I did. I did see that. Now see throughout the career, this man's storied legendary career, the career of the goat. I didn't know that we were making a sacrifice that George St. Pierre was out here for us, the fans sacrificing his good looks, uh, for functionality in the cage. I assumed George St. Pierre was bald. I assumed that this man could not grow hair. And it looks like, you know, maybe the hairline is backing up a little bit on George St. Pierre, but hell, the man is in his 40s. That's just going to happen. That is going to happen. Turns out George St. Pierre could have had hair this whole time, Ben. So I guess this week I'm just saying striking, takedowns, welterweight, middleweight, pay-per-view draws. And now we find out this man can grow hair. Is there anything George St. Pierre cannot do, Ben? Is there anything he can't do? Just saying. Now he's using shampoo. Another thing he can do. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I saw it come across the, the social medias earlier that uh, Ricardo Lamas is saying that he is he is going to retire. Okay. Like we, we, we were unsure about that afterwards. You know, he had that great fight or he, he gets fight of the night honors. He wins a real tough one and saying that he came into it thinking that this might be it. And it seemed like, okay, this, this would be a great one to end on. And then he, he, he seems like he's announced. I saw via MMA junkie that he said that this will be the last one. He's not going to do it. I guess this week I'm just saying, please let this one stick because this one, it feels like we're so close to like a kind of good ending at the right time and a right, like an ending where we can feel good about. We get so few of those in MMA. And yet I've been hurt so many times before in this precise way that it's hard to really believe in it. And I guess I'm, I guess I'm going to have to wait two years or so to find out if it really sticks for sure. But I'm just saying if ever we were going to get one where it would just, it just ended right from the storybook kind of fashion. Could it please be this one? I'm just saying. Just saying. That's, you know, more power to Ricardo Lamas. Yeah. Good luck to him. 
I want to know what the hair situation is like a couple years down the road. So like you, you do. find out the guy takes himself out of the USADA pool. Number one, that's the first way you know that the retirement is for real. And second, they post the uh, social media picture of them suddenly sporting the long hair. So there you go. Ricardo yeah, Long there you go. walking away. That's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Check us out over on Patreon. We'll be doing fun stuff all week over there, including the live chat on Wednesdays, which you can get in on for just a dollar a month, less than the price of a cup of coffee. Uh, we'll also be doing the Watchmen Rewatch podcast this week, hopefully with our interview with Watchmen writer Leela Bayak. And then a fr- on Friday, of course, uh, the Patreon Power Hour, like we always do. And then one week from today, we are back again for another episode of The Proper. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Let me tell you something. If I were Alistair Overeem, Chad, and you were in my corner, you said, you know what we're going to do this guy? We're going to rope it open a little bit. Just go, go out here. Let him hit you. Just, you know, co- cover up the important bits of the face and just let him wail away. I would be like, I'm paying you for this shit. Yeah. You're going to cut like, my did, purse for this? Did you see the picture of me after the, the fight with Jarzino Rosenstrike? Got my whole like, shit broke, man. I, maybe perhaps it felt I've been punched enough. Brett, let yeah. me correct you on a fact yeah. about what we're going to do here for the uh, for the game plan. If you want 10%, maybe come up with a better game plan. <laughs> <laughs>